Hey, kings and queens, it's your girl, Valencia Griffin-Wallace, the host of Define You Radio, and welcome to episode 195 with our guest, Anita Bentada. Welcome to the Define You Radio podcast, where class is always in session. Get ready for the life lessons, tips, and stories to help you define your life. And now your host, the drill sergeant with love, Valencia Griffin-Wallace. Anita gets on and shares with us about her toxic childhood, getting trapped in domestic violence, and how she escaped with two young children. Pens and papers ready? Class is now in session. Let's go ahead and welcome our guest, Miss Anita Bentada, to the show. Hey, Miss Anita, how are you doing today? I'm fantastic. It's so wonderful to be speaking with you today. I know. I'm excited and I love your accent. Why don't you go ahead and tell the audience where you're from and like what time is it there currently? (laughs) It's so funny because I don't think I've got an accent and I'm listening to you loving your accent. (laughs) But I'm from Melbourne, Australia and it's 8.30 in the morning here. So just starting to wake up. (laughs) So I've never been to Australia. It's definitely on my 101 goal list to go to Australia. So is it like people portray it in movies, like a lot of greenery, probably some dingoes and koalas and stuff, just, I don't know, free. Like, what is it like there? It's not like that at all. And (laughs) Um, it can get quite dry here. And so like my lawn is yellow right now because it's summertime here and it's been really, really hot. And so today's a little bit cooler, which is, which is good to have a bit of a breather from the intensity, but yeah, so it's not necessarily green. There's a lot, you know, there's desert in the middle of Australia and we have lots of different landscapes. And so right now it's not green and I'm, I, I've only seen a dingo when I've gone into the centre of Australia. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, you don't see, you can, I, I travel to go visit my sister who lives um, a couple of hours away and, you know, I have to be careful of kangaroos when I drive to see her you know, at the early morning and, you know, when the sun's setting, that's right. when the kangaroos move around and so you do have to watch because I have had the experience many years ago of driving along with my boyfriend and a kangaroo coming out and they're so fast and it was a really big one and it crashed into our car and really damaged the car and shattered the windscreen and so yeah you want to be careful when you're out um, about because of kangaroos. Wow. I guess that's kind of like, um, cause I'm in Louisiana in case you were trying to pick up my accent. Um, uh-huh. so I guess that's kind of like our thing with hitting deer here, like deer just everywhere. And here it's winter, but in Louisiana, it tends to be a little warmer than most states. So what is hot to you? Like what is y'all, you're hot there? Okay, well, we've had some days in the 40s and I don't know, I think that's around like 105. I don't know exactly. Um, So, yeah, it can vary. But when it gets into the 40s, that's 
that's very hot, especially hot. when it's yeah. very humid. It can get yeah. humid as well. That's, that's interesting. So I know when I do have Australia in my schedule to mind my timing. So um, here in Louisiana, today was pretty, pretty warm. I want to say it was maybe 70 degrees. So that's, I don't know, Fahrenheit, Celsius. I get them mixed up. But yeah. it's, yeah. So that's pretty, pretty warm here for winter, but it's our normal. We don't really get like snow like other places. That's why I probably won't ever move out the south. So have you been to the States? I, just to clarify before I answer that, I'm around Australia, the weather can vary quite a lot. So it depends where you come in Australia too. So, um, yeah, you can, and, and like in Melbourne, the weather can change every day or every couple of days. In Melbourne's known for the, you know, you get all seasons in one day. So um, you get a lot of variety. And But um, I came to the States for the very first time just November last year. Okay. And that was really, really exciting. I only got to have a, a short visit and I went to LA and then New York. And that was, be I came to, because I was going to pick up my two Stevie Awards for my work in domestic violence. Congratulations. A gold and a silver Stevie Award. And that, that's why I had the opportunity to come, which was amazing. But what also thrilled me to bits when I was in New York is before I left, I knew it was getting to winter time mm -hmm. in New York and I've never seen falling snow and I thought, oh, I'd love it if I could see some falling snow. And when a couple of days after I was there, it happened and I raced out of my hotel and walking down the street and I don't know if you remember um, in November last year there was much more snow than they expected and... Mm -hmm. And the kids had to sleep over at the school and it took people, you know, 10 hours to get home. And, yeah. And I was walking around the, amazed at how much snow there was. So I enjoyed it. <laughs> I have friends in New York in, in those cold states. Sounds like Mel, Mel, Melbourne, Melbourne, did I say it correctly? Yeah. It's a lot like Louisiana because we can go through several seasons in a day or a week's time. Whereas uh -huh. in, in New York, like they laugh at the weather here because if it gets too cold here, and I'm talking about our cold is almost like nor their normal temperature, I guess. But if it gets too cold here, we'll close schools, we'll close the government. But if it gets too hot there, They'll, they'll close the schools and everything because they don't really have air conditioners in, in those things. So yeah. um, it's quite interesting. I could visit, but I can't. It's too busy for me. It's mm -hmm. really too busy. But congratulations on your award. Thank you. So I want to go ahead and dive a little bit into your story, which is very interesting. It's very interesting because you say that you had a toxic childhood and you got trapped in a domestic violence situation. So why don't you tell me a little bit about that? Sure. Well, 
child my childhood was really tricky because both my parents weren't born in Australia and my father was born in Egypt and my mother was born in Poland and they met in Melbourne Australia and they're both Jewish and were both leaving their countries because of persecution and so my mother had grown up she was born in 1939 you know, when the World War II just started and Poland was one of the worst places for a Jew to be. And so her whole childhood was extreme trauma and affected her developmentally on, on so many levels. And then my father, even though he is from Egypt and Jewish, they had concentration camps there too. Hmm. So there was, uh, he grew up with, even though, Jews in everyday life in Egypt back then, the Jews, the Muslims and the Christians all lived together, went to school together, neighbours with each other, and it was all beautiful. But politically there was still, as a Jew, you weren't a, a proper citizen and so there was anxiety. So he grew up with anxiety and, and that increased around the time of World War Two. So both my parents came with levels of anxiety and trauma and, you know, we live, I believe, in a culture that does not understand or recognise trauma or know how to respond to it. And so they were just doing the best they could. But unfortunately, when you're a child growing up in that, it it's not enough you know for a child developmentally to understand oh my parents are doing the best they can mm -hmm. my father was really strict and I was scared of him as a child and he made really rigid rules and my mother was not coping with the demands of being a mum with young children being in Australia all of her trauma and so I learned from a very young age to walk on eggshells and to not upset anybody and not affect anybody because I needed as a child you just know without even thinking about it how much your parents can tolerate and you you shrink yourself you know when when they've got severe things going on so that you can get through because you're dependent and your brain hasn't finished developing. So, you know, you're so dependent. It can hit on, on an unconscious level. It can hit on life, death, terror. So by the time I became a teenager, I was so disconnected from myself. I felt so invisible because my parents were so self-absorbed in their own struggles that they hadn't been able to engage with me and they didn't know a thing about me what I liked, what was happening for me in my life, that I was getting bullied in school, that I was feeling lost, that there was no energy or capacity to engage with me. So I went out as a teenager feeling very, very disconnected, but with those strong messages to don't upset anybody else. And so then that meant that I ended up at a party one night and... I saw a guy there and I didn't like the look of him and I just tried to move from room to room and not walk anywhere he was walking. But he clearly he'd seen me and liked the look of me and I can describe it this way now but back then I didn't realise he was stalking me, you know, from room to room. And 
he, by the end of the night, you know, he had wanted to um, connect with me and because of my childhood and you just don't, and my mother, because of the her war experiences, understandably was devastated about how people could hate people that much. And so she, and she also was very confused about um, spirituality because how can you trust in a God that allowed this to happen? She was very troubled by that. And so she started in her exploration of spirituality, started telling me certain things as a child and they weren't helpful when you don't have your full brain capacity and when you're living under constant fear all the time. So the messages she was telling me was that you're not allowed to hate because God is watching you all the time and if you hate, then you'll be punished basically. You're not allowed to get angry. And so, you know, combined with my lived experience with my parents and learning that I'm not allowed to get angry or upset them, by the time I met this guy, it was just I didn't think about it. It was just like this is the way life is. And so I couldn't say anything that would upset him and that meant that I couldn't reject him. And so the best I could do was say to him, I just want to be friends, but I didn't even want that. And so I just felt myself getting caught in something and feeling this extreme helplessness and emotional pain. But I was so used to not being able to talk about what was going on because that was what everybody pretended through my whole childhood that, you know, everything was okay. They didn't speak up and check if something, if they felt something wasn't quite right, including grandparents and aunts and uncles, everyone wanted to, you know, look as if everything's normal when it wasn't. And so by that stage, I had all these feelings when I met this man of helplessness, wanting to run, but feeling that that habit from childhood that I can't escape. I've just got to make the best of it. And I can remember walking down the street with him one day and feeling like my mother's voice came into my head and feeling like, well, it must be my duty to love him. Hmm. And so I ended up in a relationship with him and had a child with him. So that was, and it just got worse. It, Yeah. So how did you escape from that situation how did because i know with my experience with domestic violence and dealing with different people that's in that situation or you know got out of it everybody has a different story when it comes to that get out that escape you know um my own experience with domestic violence like I went through the whole formulated process is okay. I made a plan. I hit clothes. I did those things. Cause I didn't know when that moment was that I was going to say I'm done, but I wanted to be ready. Cause I knew when I said I was done, I was not going to be able to safely go back and get things. Yeah. So what's your escape story? Yeah. So I didn't realise I was in an abusive relationship. I thought it was just the way it was, you know, 
it's tough. Um, but I didn't realize it was abuse and the, I didn't know how I could escape him because he had said that he knew how he could hide a body. Um, he had guns and he, I knew he had a really good way of being able to hide a body. It was very clearly described to me and easy for him to get away with it because of um, his, his connections and his work. And so I just, I didn't think of trying to escape, but, and I don't know to this day how I managed to do, would have managed to do it if what happened didn't happen. It was something outside of my control. He ended up going into hospital and it was when he was in hospital and I was taking dinner to the dining table and just to fill in a bit of a gap, I've got another daughter as well because because of my childhood, when I got 16, I left home because I wanted to get away from how cold and distressing it was to live in my childhood home and I ended up in a relationship for six years from 16 and I have a daughter from that relationship too and I ended up leaving that relationship he'd come from a lot of very violent abuse and he couldn't function when I became a parent when we decided to have a child together it was a mutual decision he went into terror that he was going to be violent like his father and he shut down. And I tried for a couple of years to bring him out, but he had he'd quit work. He was living in his own room. He was so antisocial. And after two years and the pregnancy of feeling like I was a single mum, I thought, I don't want to bring my daughter up like this. This is too distressing. And so I left. He actually ended up stalking me a little bit too he got really angry that I'd betrayed him and but I, I couldn't keep waiting when he wasn't showing any desire I wanted my child to have a better home life than what I'd had and I wanted a partner that was there with me and he just wasn't so by the time this next relationship was five and a half years in he was in hospital I was taking the dinner to my two girls and because he'd been in hospital a little while, my head had started to clear because previously I'd just been in that shutdown mode of, you know, emergency stress mode of I've got to just make sure that everything is the best way it can so that he doesn't explode because at that point I thought that that would stop the explosions. I understand now it doesn't. It doesn't matter if everything's going beautifully, the explosions still happen. So... I, my head just felt clear for the first time since I met him. And with that clarity, I could, my brain could process and I could go, this is what life's meant to be like. And so when I brought him back from hospital, when he was able to come back, I said to him, I'm taking my life back. And he basically, what he actually said to me is, see, I wasn't even saying about leaving. It was just about you know, and my own rights. And he said, well, I'll train a 16-year-old. I mean, I'll never forget those words. Hmm. And um, so he was still heavily medicated from being in hospital and he was sleeping a lot. And so when he said that to me and I had had more clarity, I knew he'd been abusive from day one 
once I could get that clarity being out of that stress response. And so while he was sleeping and recovering, I started looking for somewhere for me and my girls. And I knew I couldn't move somewhere where it was just a house on my own. I was too terrified. So I was looking for an apartment and upstairs so that I'd feel safer. And I went to the government assistance because I had not, no money at all and, you know, applied to get government assistance to help me and my girls. And I looked through the belongings and decided I started packing while he was sleeping. He wasn't aware, but I didn't take anything. I was so fair. I was so wanting to be fair. Um, and I basically just left with the kids' toys and clothes and the my washing machine and fridge that I'd come into the relationship with. And I didn't want to take the belongings because I didn't want any reminders of it. I wanted a fresh start. And so then when he was at an appointment one day, at this point I had then told my family because I'd realised then that it was an abusive relationship and I said that I was leaving and I needed their help. And so my dad and my elder sister came on the day I'd booked the removalist and they stayed and helped the removalist take what I'd pointed out for them to take while he was at his appointment and I went straight to the courthouse because I was terrified he was going to kill me and, and punish me and I applied for an intervention order, so that a protection order, so that he couldn't come anywhere near me or the girls and that was, that was how I escaped. What is a removalist? Is that like a mover? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, just to take our belongings. Yeah. Okay. That's that's interesting. Did you end up having to call like the police or anything on him? Like, was it a clean break or did he like stalk you a little bit? Because, you know, that is one of the most dangerous times is when you leave. Yes, it, it certainly is. And I had to call the police numerous times. Um, I, he breached the order numerous times. He assaulted me. And even though he breached orders, the courts didn't give him any consequences for it. So he got away with it every time. And it really distressed me that he was still in that mindset that he's the biggest thing and nothing will stop him. So it was just a piece of paper and I just kept ringing the police every time he breached. You know, he'd um, not returned the children when he was meant to return them from a contact visit. He was very punishing. He wanted, to, he wanted revenge. He wanted to punish me. And every step of the way he tried to do that and I just tried legally to protect me and the girls but the police and the legal system never backed me up. And he, I spent approximately seven years going to the police and the courts trying to protect the girls and myself. And he just was trying to do everything to punish. So when I escaped and he wanted to see his daughter, because I was scared for her safety because he wasn't just abusive to me, he'd been abusive to the girls too and he had a son from a previous marriage abusive to him as well. He used to handcuff my eldest daughter and he, he, 
you know, he was very physically, emotionally and in other ways abusive to the children. So as a mother, I couldn't say, sure, I'm going to hand over my daughter to you, even though I know what you do. It just felt so wrong. And so the lawyers advised me that if I didn't say yes, then just wait for him to take me to court, see if he does, which he did. And so the first thing he did to punish with me was the car he'd given me when we are in the relationship, it was in his name still, so he took that back. So that meant I couldn't take my daughter to the school because it was too far to go on public transport and she was in so much trauma. It was hard for her to wake up in the morning. We tried for a little while, but it was just too taxing. And so she lost her her the beautiful school that was her safe community. She lost that as well because he wanted to punish me. And so she went to a local school, but she was so distressed, she she couldn't even stay awake. Her system was shutting down, so I had to pull her out of school. But so he kept, you know, as I said, over seven years, kept going to court, fighting everything, breaching things. So I had to keep going back into the lawyer's office and say, he's breached this, this is what's happening so I was constantly in the my lawyer's office talking and she said my files were the biggest files she had and she didn't think she'd ever be able to put them away. She said there was folder after folder from from years. So it was it was made it very difficult for me to move on and to financially start to get some ground under me. And my life was all about court and just trying to help the three of us get to counselling to recover and try to give my girls a normal life. Hmm. Well, congratulations, because that's a, it's like you fought to get free longer than y'all was in a relationship, if my math is correct. You're right. You And you didn't give up because a lot of women just, you know, resigned to the situation or whatever, like it's just too much. So congratulations on that. Would you consider that to be your biggest obstacle? If not, what is? It's one of the biggest obstacles. The The thing about that, why I never gave up was because I truly believed that once I escaped, I made a promise to myself that I'm not going to stay silent anymore and that I'm not going to pretend and I'm going to say the truth no matter how uncomfortable it is because I can remember promising to myself that no matter how he's trying to punish me, I he cannot take away my freedom anymore, that no matter what he tries to do outside of me, inside of me, I can stay free and I will speak up. And so even though the courts didn't do what I hoped that they would do to protect me and my daughters, I still felt like that if I speak up every single time he does something criminal, then I'm still showing to him that you are not going to silence me and you are not going to control me. So I still felt like on some level I was winning, though I remember coming out of court one day and thinking no one wins when you go to court. It's an excruciating experience. Um, Even if when I got something my way in court that was temporary, I didn't feel like it was a win because it was just so 
excruciating for me and the ripple effect on my children, even if I didn't talk them through what was going on, they were still impacted by it. So that was one of the living with him and going through those seven years of court was one of the most difficult times in my life. But the interesting thing for me is on one level, the thing that was as hard as that was the fact that my family didn't speak up and they didn't step in in a way I needed. And when I went to them just as I was leaving and said, I've realised I'm in an abusive relationship and I'm escaping, one of my sisters said to me that she used to cry after she'd leave my house. And my other sister said to me like 20 odd years later when I wrote my book telling my story, Then she said to me how my two sisters used to talk to each other. And I said to her, but you didn't talk to me. And she said, but yes, I did. And then I panicked because I thought, have I gone amnesic? And at that point, my book was at the publishers for editing. And I thought, do I have to pull it back and rewrite something that I've forgotten? And I asked her what what had happened back then that I couldn't remember. And she said she'd said to me, he shouldn't talk to you that way. And that was it. And that was devastating to hear that it was not about me. Like I can understand as an, as an adult and understand because now I've, you know, been a trauma psychotherapist for 23 years. So I can understand my sisters were also impacted by our childhood and they couldn't speak up. But I didn't, that didn't stop me from feeling so devastated. They, my family did lots of things along the way after I escaped that were hugely impactful on my capacity to trust them and to feel a sense of I've got a community and a tribe. After I escaped, my father invited, he knew of everything brutal this man had done to me and the children because one time in the very beginning he came to court with me on one occasion. So he heard me describe all of the most gruesome things that you don't want your father to hear, like being raped. And yet he still decided to invite this man to his house and he would regularly have him over for visits. And that to me was a massive betrayal and communicating to this man that what you did was acceptable and that no big deal and I asked my father later why, why he did that and he said it was to see his grandchildren. But the thing is, I was visiting him. If he wanted to see his grandchildren more, he could have talked to me or, you know, and so that just felt really harmful. And as my children grew up, my daughter, you know, had conflictual feelings about her father. She wanted him to be the ideal of what she wanted in a father. And so he'd be there and his family would be there at birthdays and I'd be there as well. And my, and my sisters would go talk to him and his brothers and things like they're everyday guys. And I can remember my eldest daughter coming to me at one of the parties, so distressed saying, what are they doing? And for me, it really distressed me again because it's communicating to the whole family again that what this man did was that he didn't do anything or that what he did was no big deal. And so I felt like they were betraying my daughters and myself 
and trying to be socially nice and that that was more important to them than how their nieces felt. And that my daughters have been terrified for their lives and they knew that. They knew how my youngest daughter used to always be saying, I'm scared he's going to kill us as a kid. They knew what he did to both the girls. That was so cruel. So the things that my my parents and my sisters didn't do and what they did do took me so many years and it's why I wrote my book, The Wolf in a Suit, because I felt like that people don't know how to talk about the uncomfortable things that are happening in the family, even when they don't know fully what's going on. They often can sense something's not quite right and they don't know how to talk about it and how to stay connected to you. And if my family had been able to, things could have been different. And so my work today is a lot about helping people to be able to build that emotional muscle to talk about the uncomfortable because that impacted me for many, many years, you know, up until really till after I wrote my book and my family didn't like, you know, some of them, some of my family said threatening things to me and emailed me with threatening comments. It was very, very stressful, but I knew I was writing my story not to shame anybody, but to, if we can't talk about the uncomfortable, if we're so busy trying to protect everybody's ego, then how are we going to move on and become a safe community, the one that we all want to live in? And so for me, it's not about, oh, I can't say something about someone because that will upset them. To me, it's about we all have a best self and a worst self. And if we, if we can't own our worst self and talk about it, And what kind of modelling are we doing for our children? We're actually being really incongruent as adults because what do we teach our children? If you've done something wrong, you've got to live with the consequence of it and this is how you repair and address and learn from it. But we let our adult friends, family, colleagues, peers, we let them off the hook all the time with minimising and excuses and turning a blind eye. And there was no way that I was ever going to do that again. So, But the beautiful thing is even though my family didn't like that I wrote this book, at this point in my life I'm the closest with all of my family than I've ever been. And I truly believe that the process of telling my story helped us all to get there. Yeah. It, it sounds like it. And um, sometimes it, it probably is like some things that they were confronted with that they weren't ready to address. And then it's the public embarrassment. When I wrote um, my book, Motherless Child, which is primarily about me growing up with my mom being an addict. Um, the, and it was strictly about me and my mom and how that affected me and my childhood and growing up. But a lot of people, quite a few people got offended because they felt like I made them look bad or whatever else. So I kind of learned this little quote, like, you know, if you're going to offend somebody, don't offend a writer. And I've been writing since I was eight years old. So eventually you may find yourself in a story. I will change the name to protect the guilty. Don't offend a writer. Like to me, that's my best 
advice. Make sure if you know somebody that writes that you end up being a good character in the story, so to speak. Um, That's brilliant. And, and that's a good way for all of us to live our life. It's like if the person that I'm speaking to or doing this to right now, if they were to write about it, would I be comfortable about it? It can be a good way of getting clarity about it, about our actions and feedback. Yeah, right. Because now um, it's it's because the book is in the library locally, so I'm like it's out there like forever you know so um life lessons life lessons so many women get in these kinds of relationships and what I find a lot of them have had some type of trauma in childhood it's almost like they go hand in hand childhood trauma domestic violence why do you think women get caught up in in domestic violence like what do you think the relationship is between childhood trauma and domestic violence it's a really important question and to me there's a few layers to it one that when we're in trauma which is any experience of overwhelm as soon as we're in overwhelm our frontal cortex shuts down and we disconnect from some part of our experience because our system assesses that too much is going on and so we've got to disconnect from it to help us get to a, sa- a place of safety. And then the ideal is that we then come back to what was overwhelming to process it so that we can integrate it. But as I said before, we live in a society that doesn't understand how to recognise or respond to trauma. So what happens is we don't tend to go back to the trauma with resources, safety and support to process it. And so people have accumulative trauma. And to me, it's like um, a live wire. And then when something happens later in your life that's got a resonance with it, it trips up that those younger coping mechanisms that, that are involuntary. And that's how we process and respond in the moment from a a more limited place. So there's that trauma influence that's going on. The other reason why I think women are very vulnerable to be getting caught in domestic violence is, of course, because of our patriarchal society that perceives that women should be just soft and receptive and compassionate and forgiving and all those beautiful feminine qualities. But, I believe that we all have, it doesn't matter what what sex we are, we all have feminine and masculine qualities within us and we need access to both of them. And the masculine qualities will allow us to be fierce and take action and step out there and cut through things. But, you know, through patriarchy and religion and society, and family trauma, we've learnt to just stay with the those beautiful, nice qualities. But I talk in my book because I, as well as telling my story, I tell 11 fairy tales. And I started off in my private practice talking to women about Little Red Riding Hood and saying that we get taught to be like Little Red Riding Hood, take on a bigger emotional responsibility that's not ours to bear and be kind and giving and look after others. And so when I met the wolf in my life, I thought 
that if I was kind, forgiving, understanding, compassionate, that he would respond. If I'm fair, I thought he'd be fair. If I'm assertive, which is respectful of both people, I thought that everything would work out. But I hadn't learnt like Little Red Riding Hood because Little Red Riding Hood had been taught to be nice, but she hadn't been taught that there's wolves out there and the wolves don't follow the same rules as you and the wolves take advantage of everything that's in your basket. And so I think that's a big part of why women get caught. There's another reason that I think is very common in a lot of people and that is, you see, after I, when I was writing my book, I started thinking over why do women get caught and why do women stay? And there's, you know, so many reasons <coughs> about why women get caught. But I came up with my own theory because none of them gelled for me as to why women get caught. They all make rational sense, but not all women get caught, even though they might experience someone doing certain, you know, red flags. So why do some women get caught? And for me, what I was talking about before, about people being able to own their worst self, when we're a child, generally speaking, and I look forward to hearing your your comments on my theory, generally speaking, when someone's nice to us, we get encouragement from our family and, you know, from other significant adults around us to enjoy that, hang out with them. This is good. When someone's completely nasty, we often get told really clearly, don't hang out with them. They're not good to hang out with. But when someone is has a best face and a worst face, when someone does both, our parents don't show us how to negotiate that. And because they don't show us how to be with themselves, their own best and worst face, then we learn via them to ignore the worst face and focus on the best face, minimise the worst face. So we, we learn that because our parents don't know how to be with both and they carry the wound on of not teaching how to negotiate when someone's got a bit of both going on. Hmm. So that, for me, I think is a really big part of why women get caught. Um, and because we're disowned from our feminine power, because we don't have access to those masculine principles that are all about listening to our power within. Because every single woman I've spoken to who's escaped domestic violence, I always ask, did you have early warning signs? And every single woman says yes. And so we get taught from a very young age to disconnect from our instinct, disconnect from that deep knowing. And for me, patriarchy disconnects from everything feminine. And the feminine is about instinct and knowing beyond the black and white concrete, knowing beyond the rational. It's about the unconscious and nature and the mysterious and the magical and when we disown and we don't value in a society, those layers of our experience, if we think that everything is just physical, then we are lost in the world. And I always say that if we wait for something to be concrete, it's too late. Mm. We've got to trust those subtle signs because 
it is something that's going on that our unconscious is picking up and our instinct is picking up and it is real and it is valid and this is the i think the primary reason like they all you know feed into each other but the primary reason is because we live in a culture that disowns the feminine principle and so we don't trust ourselves we don't listen and we can know so much beyond our conscious mind, the conscious mind just repeats what it already knows and the rules it's absorbed from family and society. But our unconscious has no limits and we can know so much more. And I'd love to give you a couple of examples of that. Like when I've worked with clients, sometimes, you know, I've had phone calls with them so I can't see them. I can still pick up things that are happening in their psyche because my training was so profoundly thorough about being with the body and trauma and the unconscious that I can pick up what, what's happening in their field. And I, I don't ever say this is what's happening for you, but I'll, I'll check in and say, and, and they'll go, how did you know that? And it's because we can access it. And I know when one of my daughters was pregnant, you know, they're adults now, when she was pregnant and she was past her due date, she asked me to help her because of the work that I do to help, you know, what's stopping the baby from coming. She didn't want there to be any, you know, interference from hospitals or things. I wanted it to happen naturally. And so I did some of my work with her about working with the unconscious limiting beliefs. And we, we cleared what the fears were that were blocking her system. And she said, great, feel so much better. I know it's going to happen when it happens. It's, it's all done. And I said, okay, do you want me to sleep over or do you want me to go home? She said, go home. I'll call you when it's ready when the baby's ready and I was driving home and at that point she lived about an hour for me and I was driving home and I felt in my body contractions now I knew I wasn't pregnant right and I stopped and I rang her and I said has it started and she said yes so it's like we our unconscious is not limited by our body it can know so much more but our conscious mind has been learnt to not listen to the power we have within us. And I've got so many examples like that where, that go beyond the conscious limited ways of thinking. And, and this is why I think, you know, as women, like we were burnt to, as witches many years ago. We've been persecuted for so long about what we can know. And I think what happens is, and I'm talking generally because most violence does happen from a man to a woman, even though I know it can be reversed or, or in same sex. But there is a lot of male violence in the world to women and, you know, in countries. And, and I think that women are not only the ones that are penalised by not axing the feminine principle within them, that men become destructive when they don't have access to their, feel, their feelings, their body, their, their whole self through the lens of being with their feminine principle, to be able to be with healthy vulnerability, to be able to be with the unknown. There's so many things that the feminine principle give us. And I think the reason, this is what I think the primary reason we have domestic violence is because men also are really damaged by 
not being able to have access to their feminine principles. And so they can't have that empathy or that capacity to go beyond. So they go into this ideal because um, this ideal about how the world should be or how you should be. So, yeah, I, I go on and on about, about this. No, it's, it's really, really interesting because um, I'm going through like my childhood in my head and I think because my dad was military he we were especially me I, I would say me was raised more to be uh, unemotional yeah so you know I was tough so I dealt with being the woman I saw on TV and, you know, feeling like her and feeling vulnerable and, and internalizing my hurt. So if somebody hurt me, I would physically lash out. And I think when I think to my domestic violence, um, I call it the situation. But when I think about it, um, it took forever for me to look at it as domestic violence because he would lash out and I would lash out back. I've always been that that tough, you know, girl, that tough woman. And I didn't allow myself to feel what society would say a woman should feel like. And, you know, I was always very, I went through, I would say, seasons of being girly. Um I don't consider myself like girly now, but people, other people do. But um, cause I'm like, I'm tough. I'm a warrior. Like that's. Yeah. So when I did get in a domestic violence situation, it was more of the embarrassment. Um, and people were shocked more because I, they know me as knew me as that, that warrior woman. I'm a go down fighting. And I think part of the reason I adopted that is because my mom was so opposite. Cause when I saw her go, I don't want to say so opposite, but when I saw her go through um, domestic violence from what I can remember, it was a lot of verbal abuse. Um, mm. And I would see, I saw her slowly losing that warrior woman that was in her. Mm. And I always said, I've never wanted to be like that. I wanted to ask you being because a lot of times situations like that are generational, like we call them here, generational curses. Did your daughters have their own experience similar to one or one of domestic violence? Yeah, that's really interesting. When they were children and they were still being persecuted by him because the wolf, as one way to punish me, applied to the court to see the, my other daughter that wasn't his daughter. That was one of the things he did. So they were both being continually persecuted. <clears throat> one daughter, my, my eldest daughter that wasn't biologically his, went very introverted, really shut down and was suicidal even at around nine years old. She wanted to jump out of that first floor flat because she said Wednesday was the worst day ever because that was the day she had to go see him every Wednesday. And so that was the way she 
that was her stress response. My other daughter, who was his biological daughter, I felt like she saw him and she saw me and she thought, I don't want to be like mum because mum's being attacked. And so she became a, a lot like him. And I can remember after I escaped thinking, oh, my God, I've escaped him, but now I can't escape her because there's no way I'll ever leave my daughter. And I, so I'm still living with abuse. And so it was very difficult bringing them both up because she was very, very, she would swing from being very clingy, baby-like, very aggressive to being very, very oppositionally defiant, physically aggressive, got bullied at school because she bullied a lot herself. Mm-hmm. And she was very controlling and very angry her, her, most of her childhood. And it was really hard work bringing her up on my own. I, the first, as I said, the first thing I did after I escaped was going to therapy to make sure it never happened again. And I prioritised that even though I didn't have money because that felt to me the most important thing. And I think it was even, they went into therapy too, but because most therapists aren't trained adequately in trauma, they didn't get the help they needed. But it's not just the therapist's fault because they were still seeing this dangerous person. So it's very hard to process trauma when you're still seeing this person every week. And you've received messages through your childhood that no one can stop him because that's what they saw through their childhood before, while we were living with him and even after. So they had a very tricky time till they got older. And as they started to get to the older end of being a teenager, they started to be able to be more with the reality of what he was like and their own responses about it. And then my eldest daughter was free from seeing him, you know, when she got a bit older. The, the thing is that I did a lot of processing with them when they were little growing up because I think I was a natural therapist of myself Mm -hmm. anyway so when they'd come back and I was helpless to protect them and they were helpless too I would at least try to help them to express their anger in creative ways and to name what's going on but I would never force them because he would persecute them so they didn't also want to talk about what was going on so I couldn't question them because that would just re-traumatize them but I tried in therapeutic ways to to allow them to process what was going on the best I could. But I think also the more I could process things, the more they were freed up to know that in their own time they could go where they needed to go. So neither of them, um, my eldest daughter is happily married to a gorgeous, gorgeous man and um, they have two beautiful, beautiful children and I'm so happy for her and she's never been in an abusive relationship. All her relationships were, you know, just normal. Not that I know every detail (laughs) of them, but, you know, I I have full confidence in saying that. My other daughter, she's a single mum now, but it wasn't to do with abuse. And um, I always talk about the difference between abuse and a toxic relationship because people often mislabel things. And so I think, you know, she's had, she's had non-abusive relationships. Mm-hmm. I'm not saying that it was toxic, but that the last relationship 
he had his own trauma and he couldn't deal with it. And so his choice was a bit like in my first relationship, he left the relationship because he, he didn't want to deal with the things that were getting triggered for him. So he left. So she's had some struggles as a single mum, but it hasn't been from abuse. But to me, you know, there's a range of different toxic things that can happen when there's been trauma. And so we can maybe have attitudes that are toxic um, and aren't necessarily abusive. Um, so she was never walking on eggshells. She always had a clarity about her rights and being able to have the safety to be with her feelings and speak up. And so I'm really glad that both my girls have those skills and those capacities and, and they would never be with anyone who is abusive. So I'm, I'm really, really grateful for that. But we do come across people that have toxic attitudes and toxic behaviours and we need skills to negotiate. If a woman or somebody can't afford therapy, what do you recommend? Yeah, that's a, that's a big one, isn't it? I, was, I actually used the child support that I received from one father for, to help me and it was with low-cost therapy because it was um, commu a community counselling agency. I don't know what happens in America. I worked for three years as a trauma-trained psychotherapist specialising in trauma and abuse. I run a domestic violence group in Melbourne and I can't see all of the women in it because there's, you know, about 700 women who are members in my group. It got me distressed because everyone that I would ask, are you in therapy? Do you want to be in therapy? So many times it was, I can't afford it or I can't find a therapist who's trained in trauma or abuse or they were getting re-traumatised. And very often therapists think they know how to work with trauma, but they don't have adequate training, just superficial training. And I don't know what it's like in America, but here the training to be a counsellor or a psychologist, in the basic training as a psychotherapist, counsellor or psychologist, you don't get adequate training on trauma and abuse. So what I did last year was I recorded all my tools, all my theories, all my tips that have helped me recover, helped my daughters, helped all of my clients over 23 years. And I've recorded them into videos and audios and handouts. And I actually have a membership, online membership site. So even if someone's even too traumatized to get to therapy, they can join my, my group and receive weekly the different, I you know, give them out over a year based on all of the areas of what we need for healing from trauma and rebuilding our life and our health and our, you know, everything about that affects who we are and being in the world. They can have some amazing shifts happen in that as well. So there's lots of opportunities um, in our group. It's called Activating Self-Love. And it's on my website, which is anitabentata.com. And if you want to go to the membership site, just forward slash activating self-love. I love that. And I love that you're offering, you know, that resource for women because, you know, that would be the first thing that a woman think of. You know, I can't afford it, especially when they're getting out of a domestic violence situation where they were financially dependent so, you know, thank you for doing that and giving back. They can also find your books on the website as well. 
Yes, they can find I've got three books, another one coming out this year. I've got The Wolf in a Suit, which is my story. And in part two, I talk about the 11 fairy tales and all of the things that most people don't talk about. That So a little bit of what I've mentioned today, but there's so much more. I go in a lot deeper. I've got another um, book Crazy Making Verbal Emotional Abuse Explained, the ultimate formula for moving forward when the essential guide when an abusive relationship has controlled your life. It gives you a beautiful framework and is very, very helpful. And the next book that will be coming out in a few months is Transforming Uncomfortable Conversations, how to talk to someone when they're in an abusive relationship. So, yeah, there's a, a, I've got more books coming out after that. I've got some children's books and some other adult books, but yeah, lots planned. <laughs> I, I love, I love that. And as a writer, I understand that like soon as you start a paragraph of one book, the next two books come in your head. So I definitely love that. So as we be, you know, wrap up the interview, I would like to ask you one question. What is your favorite quote? I don't know if you know that story of it's, it's, um, there's a man looking for his keys. He's lost his keys and it's at night time and he's under the street light. And a, another man comes along and says, well, you're looking for, I help you. And so they're looking together for his keys and they're there for ages. Then he says, the, the man says, are you sure you lost your keys here? Because we've been looking and we can't seem to find them. And the man says, oh, I lost them over there, but the light's better here. We need to step out of our comfort zone and explore greater possibilities because there are solutions that are easy and possible and achievable and sustainable. It is possible, but we need to be willing to let go of the mindset that we've got. Yay. I, I love that. I love the, the story of the man looking for his keys. That would be me years ago. I would definitely say that. It has definitely been a great interview audience. You make sure you connect with Miss Anita the information, all her information will be posted on Define You Radio's Facebook page, Instagram, and of course on the website at ValenciaGWallace.com. You heard a great discussion. For me, the most important point to reflect on is really learning you and don't give up the fight like Miss Anita didn't even though the, the fight lasted longer than the relationship. So I would love to hear you guys' opinion. Make sure you drop us a line on the Find You Radio's Facebook page and Instagram. Thank you guys so much. Y'all have a great evening. Until next time. Thanks so much for listening. Make sure you connect with the show at ValenciaGWallace.com. Until next time, remember, your past doesn't define you. It gives you definition. And what you do with that is up to you. Thank you for listening. Connect with the show at the Define You Facebook. Until next time, remember your past doesn't define you. It gives you definition, and what you do with that is up to you.